This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron. I'm one of your hosts, Wayne Chang. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Imogen Jinjel. Um, and today we're also joined by a special guest, Laura Hersbrenner, the editor and layout designer of Exploring Eberron. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, and in this episode, we'll be... Uh, Gee, this is a little redundant. We're exploring. I guess we're exploring, exploring Eberron. We're uh, <laughs> we're doing a little bit of a <clears throat> a little bit of a, a show just to talk about the book. And this is the new book uh, by Keith Baker. In case anybody doesn't uh, hasn't doesn't know, and it's coming to uh, Dungeon Masters Guild um, end of July. Fingers crossed here. Yep. Uh, and um, as we usually start off the show, we usually have a couple references um, for those who haven't seen it. Uh, Mike Shea, Sly Flourish, uh, actually did a preview. Uh, he actually did a flip through of the uh, of the book, and uh, it's up on YouTube now. I, I don't know if it's on, still on Twitch. And uh, if you don't happen to follow um, Exploring Eberron or uh, KB Presents, uh, there is a Twitter. We'll put it in the link in the show notes. Uh, and it's got previews. It's got a you know kind of full spread previews. And um, we do have a link to the product page, which we can't give out at this time because it's not actually active. Um, but that's basically um, a thing. That, that's basically what we, we have out there right now. There's a couple of reviewers that are uh, sending sending us some stuff. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at. And uh, I guess, Keith, do you want to explain to all the listeners out there in listener land, uh, what's Exploring Eberron? <laughs> Uh, so exploring Eberron, you know, the way Eberron began was with this fantasy setting search through Wizards of the Coast, uh, where they just wanted ideas for new worlds for Dungeons and Dragons. And they got 12,000 of them and ended up ultimately picking Eberron, the world that I had created. Uh, but first of all, the whole original idea I created wasn't exactly the world we've seen today. There was a lot of work. You know, I worked together with Christopher Perkins, uh, James Wyatt, Bill Slavasek, Jeremy uh, Crawford, many other people. So it's, uh, you know, the case that the world has evolved from where it began, but it's also the case that even along the way, there's many aspects of the world that I have always loved and wanted to explore in more depth. But because until now, uh, only Wizards of the Coast could produce Eberron content, it wasn't actually possible to write about these things. I always wanted to write more about the planes, but unless Wizards decided to do a Plains of Eberron book and they never did, there wasn't an avenue to do that. So once it became possible to create Eberron content for the DMs Guild, uh, Wayne, uh, we were hanging out at a convention, said, well, why don't we make a book that is all those things you wanted to write? And that's how this began. And I will go ahead and say it's not all the things I wanted to write, because what we discovered is even what we've got here ended up being more than we expected it to be. There's so much that I want to, whenever we can, dig deeper into. Uh, but we crammed a lot of my favorite things uh, into this book. And I don't, uh, if you want like a really close look at what's in this book, go check out Sly Furlish's preview uh, that you can find, as we've discussed. But we do want to give you a, a quick sort of overview of what we do have in here. There are eight chapters in the book. 
And the first is discovering Eberron. And that sort of, you know, let's just talk about general things about the world that you already know, but that rising from the last war couldn't really get into much detail with. It talks about history uh, going all the way back into time and, you know, with the age of demons, the age of monsters, uh, but then also looking at a few events in more depth, the War of the Mark, the Silver Crusade. And one of the things I always tried to do throughout this book was really to say, why do these things matter? Why does do we care about the War of the Mark? How could it affect the game you're running now? Because to me as a world designer, part of the, the biggest risk of creating lore is that you're just creating a pile of lore that no one actually has a use for, that you're losing your story in there. Uh, anyone have any thoughts about that? Actually, there was there was something that when we started when we started brainstorming and designing and kind of coming through this chapter, chapter one was actually one of the largest chapters. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It actually contained everything, um, and we eventually <laughs> what we did was actually start breaking everything out. Um, it was uh, I think I believe faiths was in here. Mm-hmm. Faith was not its own chapter um, because religion is part of everyday life, as it were. Yeah, so it, there was a couple of things and. Um, obviously we, we have these notes and we have this, this page count and, and all these things that we're trying to look at. And when Keith kind of says, you know, these are the things that he wanted to, to write about. Um, I remember this conversation that Keith and I had, uh, we had a couple of times actually. And we, we, we did have this conversation, uh, at that con, I think this was October, 2018, some, something like that. Yeah. And, um, what, what what Keith had been saying was like, yeah, maybe I, I'm going to do a supplement on Warforged, and I want to do a supplement on Changelings. Um, there's a couple little things that he he had an idea about working on. It's like I want to do the planes, obviously. Drawn, yeah, and yeah, Drawn was a big one as well. Like that that ended up being a big chapter, obviously a big section. And as as we're driving, I think we're driving actually to go to go to um the game store. Yep. As I was driving, I was like. Keith, what if this was all one big book? Because <laughs> I didn't want to wait for fifteen different supplements from from Keith Baker. I wanted one big book where everything was in there. Now, obviously, this is and not. This everything. is what you got. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, that's sort of a little bit where that started. But in in terms of specific chapter one, I mean, we broke out a ton of stuff from chapter one. I mean, chapter one, you know, originally had a lot of um. um Game mechanics that we broke out into their own chapter, uh, faiths that was not its own chapter. I, I think the races were actually were were. I, I don't remember the races were in there, but I think maybe races were much smaller, and we had to break certain stuff out. Um, yeah, so that that you know this this is not a meaty chapter for chapter one, but this was this was a, a big chapter that we eventually broke out into different topics. So it is is the case. And because of that, it's not actually as long or large a chapter as it once was. Two of the things that really stand out to me uh, are we talk more about Seer. Um, and part of it is a lot of the, the core books, Five Nations, uh, you know, even the campaign guides, really focus on sort of the Mornland. But they don't talk about the culture of the people 
what was it before it was the morn uh the morn land and that's sort of important because among other things it colors what you can find in the morn land and so we've got more about that uh and we also have a big section on the last war itself because one of the just little things for me that i found very unsatisfying about the source book forge of war is it talks about the war, but it doesn't talk about how it was fought. And to me, one of those basic principles of Eberron is it's a world where magic has been used to solve problems we solve with technology. And I've always wanted that question of, so how does magic actually appear on the battlefield? What are the tools people are using? What are the equivalents of artillery? Laura? On the flip side of that, I think it's really interesting in the magic and the world section and then spinning off of that, the artificer that depicts the the lack the lack of war and how does the magic flow from that into the rest of the world today. Um, I've seen so many players even just digging through the previews on Discord since Sly Flourish did his little spoiler video and coming up with so many new character ideas for, you know, this, this really inspires me that ma- magical ambience table um, has really been fun. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the thing is it talks specifically about the war, but it also talks about just the role of everyday magic. And so this is a big thing of none of these things are that dramatic or uh, uncovered, but they're things that just weren't covered the way I wanted to look at them of of just how does magic affect your everyday life? Uh, Anything else anyone wants to say on chapter one? Yeah, I I was just going to ask, I think the... One of the the, the big strengths of, of this chapter, at least from my perspective, is the sort of grounded level um, at which all of these topics are centered on characters and players and people. Um, because I think, it, you know, in some of the books like Forge of War or some of the original campaign guides and so on, uh, there's a lot of very big picture stuff. Um, whereas here... Um, I think even uh, whether it's, you know, looking at the, the, the histories, as you said, um, or whether it's looking at things like the tools of the last war or the last war backgrounds, it all is tying in towards, you know, what does this look like to my player character? Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that people are going to find most useful Absolutely agree. I especially love the the early history, the, the the prehistory of the world, looking at the Age of Giants and everything that we've known a lot of the details on from past books. But in every single section, Keith lays out why does it matter and character ideas. And that's a recurring theme in each of those. And so you can take this abstract history that's happened eons before your character ever existed and actually realize, hey, I can build a character around this and I can interact with the world because the Age of Monsters existed. Yeah, and I think Laura hit it right on the head. I mean, I, I, that's something that actually uh, Mike Shade noticed as well. The book, like, one of the points of the book was not just to spew lore, uh, which Keith can do great, obviously. <laughs> you've lost the manifest zone. But one of the things that, um, and I, I'm, I'm not saying this is uniquely Keith, but obviously I know him quite well, is something that he does amazingly is put the lore, this huge amount of information that flows out of the hat and the brain, <laughs> and he's, he sets it into it sets it into something where it's usable. Um, it's not just the age of demons. Well, great, yay! There's a lot of demons running around. Like, 
why does this matter? And and I I originally, I'll be honest, I did not like the why does it matter title, but <laughs> it's very, very, it, it's very, very to the point. And that was one of the things uh, I'm actually looking at the notes we have from our original brainstorm document Keith and I had, <laughs> looking at some of the things like what and and that was one of the points that we had was like whatever is written in this book has to apply in some way, not just be lore, but a, be um, not just information, but it has to be applicable somehow. It, it has to generate a, a DM idea or a player idea, and that that was a, a big thing when we started. No, and I think that's that's absolutely right. And so that's a question people might have is who is this book for? And there are one or two sections where we specifically call out, okay, you are now entering spoilery territory that if you're a player, your character might not know this. But we really tried throughout it to say this is a book essentially for everyone, that even if it's primarily a lore book, it is filled with ideas of why does this matter? How can you use this? And so I'm glad that it's you know worked out there. Uh, chapter two is about races. And mostly it's just touching on on the races we already, you know, the unique races of Eberron, Changelings, Kalishtar, Warforged, Shifters. And to me, part of the goal was to add a little more depth, you know, adding elements. For example, I have a different take on Changelings than how they came out in Races of Eberron. Not that I disapprove of what was done. And, and again, in, even in my version, uh, I sort of add in, this is how I'd incorporate that. But it's a broader view. Uh, and so part of it is just adding, this is my particular take on this. Uh, I will say one of the things that is a, a sort of a new point that we touch on is the Elves of Arenal, uh, which is another of those points. Originally, we were planning to have a whole Arenal section, and it was just one of those things where as the book expanded, it wasn't the most interesting element. It was one that uh, we ended up narrowing down. But we still wanted to talk about the elves themselves from that perspective of, again, what does this mean for a character? What does it mean for an NPC? What are these people like? And so there's more information there than we've had before. I think we also got more information on them even outside of Chapter 2 because in the, um, what did we call it, Uncharted Domains, <laughs> whatever that chapter ended up being called, um, mm -hmm. We talk about the sea elves, and so yes. we really get a really great picture of a lot of their personality, I think, that follows through to Arenal in general, um, yep. even outside of Chapter 2. So anybody that really loves them, it's yep. not just Chapter 2. Read Chapter 2 and then know that there's more coming. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, chapter 3 then gets into faiths and the religions, and this, again, comes to the fact that I didn't write Faiths of Eberron. So this is not, for some people, this isn't going to be entirely new. It is treading ground. You know, you've probably already read about the Silver Flame. You've probably already read about the Blood of Vol. But it is giving a concrete, clear, this is how I use them and view them. You know, I've always had some issues with how the Silver Flame's been presented by other authors, and certainly the Blood of Vol has been very inconsistent. So this is the concrete, this is my view of them. Wayne? So so everybody knows, Faith's, the, the Faith's part was originally part of chapter one. I just mentioned that. Mm -hmm. It was originally about 16 pages, and that was going to be... <laughs> 
without including, <laughs> yeah, so you'll, you'll hear my, my laughing about page counts later on yeah. about the, and that was without the sovereign host. We actually was, we actually were not going to include the sovereign host. I'm just guys, guys giving you a little bit of a, everybody knows uh, about the sovereign host. Yeah, no, everybody knows it's fine. No, no big deal. Um, this was actually one of the first, um, uh, I'm going to put my art director hat on for a sec. This is actually one of the first images that I wanted to have done because mm, this yes. was something I wanted to do. To do. Uh, it is one of the images that you guys saw as a banana. You will not see it until we launch. <laughs> it is uh, one of our closely guarded secrets. I think there's only six people who have ever seen it. And, um, and this was a, this was a, a commission I really wanted, wanted to have done. Um, and uh, I've got notes. Like, I've got like, you know, a small paragraph of notes of what it was, but this was, this was going to be, I, 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 we said sixteen pages. I think we originally we were going to get down to eight or mm-hmm, ten, mm-hmm. and then we broke it out into its entire own chapter because it was just like there was something that somebody said, and I, I, I'll be honest, I can't remember who, that Keith went, hmm, and Asimars came out, and that was like four, yep, four and a half pages or something like that. Well, and I think one of the the biggest pieces of it. So we started with the blood of all and the silver flame. Because those are two things for me personally that uh, just have never really been presented in either a consistent way or the way I saw them from the beginning. So I always wanted to this to include, this is how I view those two faiths. And then it got to, we might as well talk about the silver flame because there's a lot of things there. Finally talking about the dark six. Uh, and then, well, hold off on that for a moment. Imogen, ship thought. Oh, uh, I was just going to sort of, before we, uh, before we brushed too quickly past the sovereign host, mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to bring up that um, I think this is one of the sort of the, how, what am I thinking here? I'm thinking that um, in a lot of the previous sources, I, I feel like the sovereign host has never really been developed much for player characters you know it's set up as this um sort of all-encompassing sort of widespread faith uh and it's very much the default you know this is what people believe some you know here um but i think that this really goes into some of the um the sort of the, the philosophy of the sovereign host um, and the ways some of the sort of subsections of it can really express themselves. So I think that's another really good section for player characters who are wanting to um, sort of actively express sovereign host worship rather than what I see more commonly, which is to, you know, sort of say a quick prayer to Orion um, you know, mm-hmm. curse the fury or something, but I feel like there's the, there's some meat here that you can really develop character from, if you know what I mean. Well, and I'm certainly, you know, that was certainly the goal, and <laughs> uh, and and that's the thing is I think you're right is that to this point it's it's always just been oh they're just the people of lots of gods, but I think not only talking about. Uh, the fact that there's different interpretations of it, that there's different groupings like the three faces, uh, and also, again, uh, that it does go deeper into the Dark Six, who worships the Dark Six and why. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm glad that that, that comes across well. Uh, 
what I would say the the next big piece that was back to to Wayne's point of me going hmm, and suddenly we have sixteen more pages, uh, was the Cults of the Dragon Below, and part of the point of that is the Cults of the Dragon Below have always been around from the very beginning is this sort of nebulous ah, they worship. Dalkir and overlords, but what does that mean? What does that look like? How does one differ from the other? And so this goes through and actually looks at 10 different patrons, if you will, the sort of 10, you know, five Dalkir, five overlords, uh, really discussing how are their cults different? What are they trying to do? What are these people like either as enemies or if you wanted to play a character from this cult, uh, as well as just talking about the sort of different styles of cult that we've had. And again, that's an idea that's been out there all along. The the Whisperers, uh, which are the Curzon cult that, that keep Gibber and Mouthers in their basements, have been around uh, from day one, but we just don't really talk about them. And so this is one of the big spots where it's something that's never really been discussed in depth in a canon source. Even after Keith finished writing and we were sure that we had chapter three completely locked and it was in layout and it was done. He then finished the plane section and he went, Hmm. And he completely (laughs) rewrote the entire Asimar section. That is true. Uh, and also, as long as we're, uh, we have you here, Laura, you know, have to call out that uh, one of the fun things about the Cults of the Dragon Below uh, section was you and I worked together to come up with symbols for all these different cults. We did. We have a completely new set of symbols, cute little sketches for each of them um, on little scraps of paper. Um, and, I actually and- did. I think I did about half the art for this chapter. I did several other mm-hmm. symbols. I don't consider myself an artist for the record. Please, nobody contact me to commission me. I am not available for commission. But I I had been working on some symbol projects, and we did about half of these were new symbols for the chapter. Yeah, and part yeah. of the point of it is that in canon sources, it's actually pre- presented as though the drag cults of the dragon below have this symbol, which makes no sense because they aren't a single force. And what I like about the style we did uh, that, Laura, you came up with, you know, is this point of... We wanted them to be things that felt like you could find this painted on a wall, an alley. Like these are the sort of the cult springs up somewhere, it starts marking its territory like this. Wayne? I, I actually had a, a player um, that was on the Discord server that Sauce Life Flourishes um, preview that said that she wanted all of the handouts. Like she wanted each of the little Cult of the Dragon Blow symbols as handouts for her players because she wanted to be able to hand them out to people <laughs> as they encountered these cults. Originally, again, art director hat. Um, originally, this was supposed to be um, this was to be like the bulletin board on Sharn, like a Sharn watch thing, where all these symbols were pinned in, and it's supposed to be like strings, like a, yep. a murder board, investigation like board, yeah. And so we had a couple artists. We actually had a couple people, sort of like oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know that. And then when Laura had come in, and we said, "Well, this is what we want to do, and this is kind of what we want to look at," <clears throat> we decided the murder board idea wouldn't work, but we wanted each of these individual symbols, and that was actually really, really important. It actually, it actually plays to uh, chapter five when when you see those little yeah, um, yeah. Uh, landscape symbols. An awesome job, you know. We, you know, it was like, oh, is it this one? This one? This one? And going through with Keith, it was just like, here's Keith. Okay, Keith, we need twelve symbols. Okay, no problem. Like two hours later, we're like, okay, well then. Well, it um, turned out. Real, but uh, in terms of all the art, 
you know, Laura actually really went out of her way to develop a lot of these symbols. I know, I think she was, you're going to use, I might be using them for something else, but it was just, just to have that opportunity to be like, we're changing some things. Let's take a look at this in a completely different light. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially those, those symbols, I'm, I'm very happy that they're in there because even though we have the original, um, you know, the, the obsidian, you know, dragon below symbol right. at the very front, it's the little individual ones that really matter. Yeah. So basically, as as Wayne said, really chapter one through three, in the beginning, that was all chapter one. And we ended up splitting them out because they ended up being relatively significant pieces of information. But chapter four and chapter five are where we really start getting to these were the things I really wanted to deal with. So chapter four, uh, which is called Uncharted Domains, uh, deals with three main topics, well, four main uh, topics. Uh, Droam, which is something I've always loved. Droam is the the nation of monsters uh, run by the daughters of Sorakel. I'm wanting to really talk a little more. And I got to say, I could write another 200 pages just about Droam. But nonetheless trying to really give a sense of how does it work what is its history how do these creatures work together uh Dakan, the uh the heirs of Dakan, the um you know goblinoid nation and part of that was to really talk about the again the history of these goblins that once dominated uh corvair what they're up to now and even includes a glossary of uh we've various people have developed uh, a lot of the goblin language over, uh, you know, the decades. Um, the Moorholds, which we talked about in a previous episode, but basically we had this new take on the Moorholds for Rising, but then we didn't go into it very much detail. And so here, finally getting to talk about their relationship to the realm below and the Dalkir, and really giving each hold uh, more about its unique character. And finally, uh, the Thunder Sea, you know gets into uh, aquatic cultures which is another topic that uh, the original submission that i gave to wizards of the coast back 14 years ago included uh, aquatic civilizations but we've never really talked about them so just looking looking at the uncharted domains i mean we're talking about what is it? 60 pages, um, 60 pages, which is originally was supposed to be 38 pages, something like that. Um, I'm looking at our, our planning document here and, um, yeah, it, it went a little over. <laughs> we actually cut, uh, obviously Keith said he can write a lot more on Droam. Um, we actually cut, uh, quite a bit on Droam, not because we didn't want to give you guys the information, we just, it, it was going to, I think it felt it was going to be a little cumbersome. So we, we cut out specifically talking about a lot of the specific domains and the specific uh, warlords. Not to say that that's not going to be come up, pop, might not pop up somewhere else, but yeah, that I, was something that um, we actually early on had art for that and then had to roll it back because it was basically, well, we we're, we're, we're a little, we get a little lost in this chapter. I, I think one quick point just to make is that uh, part of that is is it comes back to is this for players, game masters, or both? And a lot of that work felt more just for for game masters. 
Imogen, did you have a thought? One thing I wanted to uh, sort of draw attention to on on drone before we move on. Um, forgive, forgive me, Laura, because I know you're not a fan of this, but the the phrase "wide monster" um, comes up, and I think that's such a wonderful sort of summary of the the way to approach drone as a as a game master, or even as a as a player when you're trying to immerse yourself in the setting. Um, it made me laugh so hard as, <laughs> as a player and wince so hard as an editor. The phrase wide monster should not exist, and yet it is so beautiful. Uh, to, to clarify for anyone who doesn't get the joke, part of the point is what we've always said about Eberron is that it's not high magic. Magic is not particularly powerful. It's wide magic, that it is widespread. And so, yes, in Droem, part of the point is what they are using as the tool with which they build their civilization are the natural abilities or supernatural abilities of the monsters that make up the nation. And so wide monster. Any uh, other things people want to call out from the chapter? I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's um, one of the, the biggest uh um, pieces of new lore, I think, in the whole book is the Thunder Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, a chapter, or at least a section of this chapter, that a, a lot of people are going to be very uh, excited to to finally get their hands on. I know there's been a lot of lot of buzz in the fan community about about finally getting the the under the sea lore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering what I suppose what kind of drove that uh that that part of writing that chapter how much of that has been kind of floating around in 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 your brain keith for um for 15 years and how much has been developed for for this book uh well i like that it's floating around of course because you know (laughs) See, uh, so this is, is, as I say, part of the issue is this is something that the core of it has been around from the very beginning. That, in fact, when I submitted the original uh, story Bible for Eberron, which at the time didn't even have a name. It was it was Thrilling Tales of Swords and Sorcery. The, the name Eberron is something Bill Slavisek developed. Uh, it included not only descriptions of everything, but it included two maps and one was a map of the world uh, that that just marked off spaces on the oceans. And the other was the map from the perspective of the aquatic nations, where all of the continents were just black because they don't care. But it was spelling out all the, the different aquatic nations and their territories. And so that core idea has been there uh you know, forever. And in starting to work on it on this chapter, part of what I realized is it's too big a topic because it is as big as the rest of the world. And so that's why we ended up just saying, well, let's just focus on one of the seas, on the Thunder Sea. And so part of it is we have the Sahugan of the Thunder Sea, but that's not all. They aren't a monoculture. Go to the Bitter Sea, you know, you'll find a totally different Sugan or Merfolk culture. Laura? I feel like that really highlights a, a feeling that I had when reading this section is that this just this one section of this one chapter could be an entire new campaign setting of its own. The <laughs> amount of lore and new ideas and new cultures that you put in it, I want an entire book just on the seas because yep. like with your original proposal almost 
two decades ago now to Wizards of the Coast, you had an entire world just under the sea. And I really caught, I really caught that in the section more than I think in any other chapter or section, just the vastness of it all. And I really loved that. So, so that's the point to me is the Thundersea in a sense is the Corvair of the oceans where I'm just saying, we're going to focus on this one and, and I'd love to get to the others, but, uh, but let's focus on this in part because the Thundersea lies between Aronal, Zendrick, and Corvair. And so it is a, a, the place you're going to have a lot of activity on. Wayne? I, I think Laura, this is one of the things that Laura kept, keeps talking about, because this is like one of her favorite sections, the, the Carlassa. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, this was, I, I remember when we, when, when uh, I put this, um, <clears throat> you'll see it in the pre- you'll see it in the preface, Keith sketched something out. <laughs> I remember when I put this to one of the artists, and he drew something and came back and Keith basically said, it's not big enough. <laughs> the behemoth, um, I don't think it would call Carlasso. I, I don't think he'd use that word quite yet, but it was like, no. this behemoth, I remember he kept using that word, is not big enough. And that went back two or three times. So we just kept on enlarging and enlarging this huge creature. Um, it's the opening picture for this section, uh, for the uh, the Thunder Sea section. Um, it is actually one of my favorites in this book as well. It's just there's a there's a sense of scale that you, you can't you don't get it really get obviously I, I can I have one that's you know the size of my screen I can look at it and be whoa okay that's a lot bigger um, this was a this was an interesting section because um, originally I think this was originally in the the outline document uh, we were going to talk about it it was sort of it was going to be sort of beneath the waves that's what I called yep. it until the very very end yep. <clears throat> actually even after we called it the thunder sea I think I still called it beneath the waves and it wasn't until kind of sort of distilling the idea down and I feel like, I think originally it was supposed to be 13 pages uh, yeah 13 pages yep and you have to remember when when I'm quoting these numbers this we are originally going to have um um the mechanics uh to be inside the same with the lore and we ended up pulling all the mechanics almost all the mechanics out of these chapters and putting them into their own chapters. So this was a big section and Keith had to decide basically kind of break this down a little bit more. And that's where the Thunder Sea idea came from. Now, finishing up with uh, your question, Imogen, you know, so part of the point is the core ideas were there 15 years ago. Uh, where it was the case that where it all came from was just looking at things in D&D and saying you have the Swagan, which are, by their 3-5 stats, actually more intelligent and wiser than people and uh, than humans, that you have merfolk who are just as intelligent as, as humans, that basically if you have all these sentient races, uh, civilized races out in the sea, we should feel their impact. They should have nations of their own. Crossing the ocean means you are going through their nations. You know, what does that mean? And the broad outline of what is there, the Eternal Dominion, the Valerian Protectorate, uh, the Curacala Merfolk, uh, those broad ideas were there, but because it was only in the setting Bible, I never actually drilled down in detail and really filled them out. So it's only now that I really thought through a lot of these ideas. And as Wayne mentioned, things like the Carlasa, there was a general idea that tied to that, but it really only sort of you know came up here. So it's sort of that combination of taking an old original idea and really fleshing it out. It was... Um... 
I, I know we keep joking, and Christian, if you're listening to this, we, we I think we still want you to read the book. We do. Um, you know, I, but I think one of the really interesting things um, is that um, Laura and I and Will, the other designer, and even some of the, the playtesters got a chance to listen to Keith <laughs> as he developed these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously I, I, I have notes from Keith and everything from the beginning, and he knows what he's talking about, but I would love to have a editor's cut, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, um, not the editor's cut, the, the, um, the commentary track. So as Christian's reading this book over six hours, Keith's like, Keith's like, Oh, this is what we were thinking when we did this and, and, and whatnot. I think that would be really cool. <laughs> and, and we're trying to give you that, that sense here uh, of what was going on with this book. Cause this is, um, there's some things here that people have never seen, obviously. And if you've, if you've looked at the, um, the flip through, obviously you've seen a little bit, but you may have never seen, never heard about, uh, or maybe never thought about using. But one of the really important points was to, if you read this, hopefully it gives you an idea how to use it. And the undersea part was something I know Keith really, really wanted to write. Um, and I think I, for me, it was personally like, oh, this is going to be kind of interesting. Um, it turned out amazing. <laughs> like it really, really did. Um, and definitely had a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth here about, you know, what is this supposed to mean? What is this supposed to work? And, and, um, I think it was, uh, I think my, my standard saying for this chapter was sea elves are, um, uh, some explicit deleted here. Sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're, 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 um, they're not good people. Yep. Laura? Yeah. Like Wayne said earlier, the Carlassa are definitely my absolute favorite part of this chapter and probably of the whole thing. I had one new thing, but it was really fascinating from an editing perspective, seeing the original draft mm-hmm. of the Undersea and the Carlassa, which actually changed. This was one of the most dramatic changes I feel like we made as far as the story mm-hmm. from the first draft to the final one. And so it was really fun seeing behind the scenes, you know, that the evolution of what Keith has always had in his mind and what he put on paper and then seeing how quickly he can turn around a new idea that's even better. And it's not that we completely reversed the story and did something oh, no. entirely different, but the, I have just enjoyed being the little fly in the wall behind the scene, seeing Keith Baker in the hat, taking an idea and then flipping it in what a, cu- a manner of hours. We took the original draft and completely changed the entire idea upside down yeah, um, and made it something that was so much more awesome and tied to the, tied to the setting in a unique way. Tied into the planes. Spoiler, the Carlossa had to do with the planes and it's really awesome. Yeah. Um, maybe one day we'll have to tell everybody what the original draft was, but the, the yeah. new version is just absolutely fantastic. And I love everything that ended up in the final draft. It's, I feel like it's a perfect fit. Yeah, we can we can definitely have the the you know director's commentary at some point later. Uh, I will say that that, that is another uh, big example though of what Wayne brought up. Of yes, from day one, I always knew CLs were jerks, but we never actually really spelled out what does that look like in the water. They are you really know. really jerks. They're, They're terrible. terrible people. <laughs> They're terrible people. Um. So, uh, then. Going on from there, you know, chapter five was the other really big thing that I've been wanting to write for, you know, again, for 14 years now, which is the planes. Oh, yeah. And, no, no I, I'm betting nobody really wants to hear about this. So no, no, no. I think but, it's fine. But this is this is the point is that 
when we created Eberron at the very beginning, part of what was interesting about it was to say, even though you can connect to the core cosmology through the plane of shadow, that was always an idea that was out there. The whole idea was that Eberron had its own unique planar cosmology that was not connected to the blood war, was not connected to the standard plane, elemental planes, uh, that it had its own unique cosmology. And yet the problem was, and this this was very much tied to manifest zones, uh, shout out to, to the title, uh, to all these ways that the planes affect the world. And yet the problem of doing something entirely new like that is that then we didn't actually get to talk much about it. And it means there hasn't really been enough for people to see how they're different or what the point is or how you use them. So I've been wanting to write a Plains of Eberron book forever. And while that is not what this is, it at least was a chance to go through and, and look at each plane and really say, what is this? How, you know, what is its core defining concept? What's interesting about it? Uh, what's interesting if you go there, but also how does it affect the world? Even if you don't go there, how can it play a role in your campaign? Any, uh, anyone have any particular comments? Laura? On the, on the Plains chapter? <laughs> the Plains chapter was interesting from, from a reader's and an editor's perspective because the original drafts I got for some of the Plains had so much more information and then others were shorter just because there's some, there's some that there's a lot to say that hasn't been said and others that weren't. And so it was a really interesting task taking the Plains that had so much information that was so much more than anyone else did um, and kind of equalizing it all. And finding the ways that Keith helped to fill out the the plays that he hadn't written so much on. And then really the great stories that came out of that. I, I guess I just, I'm constantly fascinated as the fly on the wall, like I mentioned before, being able to see the creative process with people and realizing that what you see on the paper wasn't just magically set months and years ago, that sometimes it was just created on the spot and it was perfect that way. Well, uh, Wayne, this um, from <clears throat> now from a production's point of view, this was the last chapter submitted, and mm-hmm. uh, originally I believe it was uh, thirty-six pages. <laughs> it's supposed to be, um, <clears throat> as, as you notice, I'm, I'm I'm putting a trend here. Um, thirty-six pages. Um, this is probably the longest. Uh, Laura can correct me if I'm wrong. This is, if not the longest, it's between this and chapter four. It is. It and, is almost uh, half the book just on its own. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, every. Every single, every couple of days, because Keith submitted the, this by section, uh, every single couple of days, Keith would go, okay, I think, uh, w- basically, we had decided, okay, we need to try to get these to about four pages each, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's by word count. And Keith would go, okay, I'm going on this one. And the next day, and Laura can back me up on this, <laughs> Keith would say, this was a lot more interesting than I thought, so I'm not <laughs> yes. like... 40, you know, 4,000 words, which is, which is about four and a half pages yep. uh, in our word count. I, in and his defense, I feel like there was, this is how long this one is. Let's see how this goes. Um, and um, I believe when we got to, when I, we got to Zoriad, um, Keith bet me, <laughs> Keith bet me that he could keep this to three pages. Uh, Yes, he said he could keep it to three to four pages. So I said, fine, we'll make a bet. 
So <clears throat> uh, Keith got everything. I, I, regardless, he said he said he's going to be under thirty six hundred words. I said fine, you take thirty under thirty six hundred, and I'm going to take between four to five thousand. Forty five hundred <laughs> forty five hundred words is is five pages in, in our word count. Obviously, uh, that's before editing. And um, so I said, you're going to be at five pages, but I got between four to 5,000 words. I believe the final count um, before editing was 4,498 words. So it's more interesting than I thought. (laughs) Yeah. So during this process, especially the planes, I know this was one of the things that Keith was very excited, right? He can talk more about it. It was very exciting for me because while I don't use as much of the planes in my games, this was one of the things I heard constantly from the public constantly from the listeners constantly from the readers constantly from people was just i want to see this section i want to know more Uh, i want to know everything there is to know about the planes um this was the most requested thing this most one of the things i joked the most about telling people that it was not going to be in the book um or that we were going to include Beator or something like that um obviously we didn't (laughs) in that sense um but this was this was a fun 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 section, um, but also it, it was a gigantic section. This this is this was this was a monumental task for Laura. Yeah, I feel like this chapter is single handedly responsible for at least half the delays with getting the book out because, as just about everybody knows by this point, the book was supposed to come out a little bit before now. <laughs> But I feel like if we had just deleted planes and released the book without it, we would have had a beautiful 150 or so page book and everybody would have adored it and they would have hated us for deleting planes. And so instead of doing that, we decided to delay and give Keith the time to write a little bit more on the topic that most of us really wanted him to talk about. And I think it's it's really paid off. And I I say this as someone who's just been kind of sat on the, 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 the sidelines with the you know the beta reading or the play testing and so on watching you this were, wonderful creation come together <laughs> well so relatively speaking <laughs> um but there's 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 so much to really kind of dig into uh where um most of the planes in previous books whether that's in you know the Eberron campaign guide from 4e or the ECS from 3e um they had one paragraph and mm-hmm. yep. um I hate to say it but some of the planes were difficult to find an interesting nugget with. And I think they were entirely of, boring, is what you mean to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> Dandy, for example, was the plane of law. Um, and there's been a lot written about planes of laws with, say, Mechanis in Planescape and so on. Um, but it was difficult to find a, a, a sort of a fun Eberron twist on a new idea. Um, whereas I think every single plane um, in Exploring Eberron has something in it that's going to make you sit up as a reader and say, huh. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I think one of the, the best examples of that, I think that's probably probably one that's going to get people talking the most, is Zoriat's Maze of Rats. <laughs> <laughs> the Maze of Reality? That's, but, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the material plane is a, imagine the material plane is a rat. Um, I think it's a wonderful (laughs) line to read, um, (laughs) in a source book. Um, so I'm kind of curious where that idea came from or, um, well, 
uh, sort of elaborating on the concept a bit uh, for folks, you know, part of the idea was saying that Zoriat Zoriat is ultimately supposed to be alien. This is supposed to be the the place that does not fundamentally make sense. That if Lamania is the plane of nature, Zoriat is the plane of unnature. Uh, and so it was supposed to be the place where things like time don't work the way we think they should. That this is where you could travel through time by going here uh, because you go there and if you come out, you'll come out somewhere different. And also we talked before about the idea that the GIF might be survivors of another world that the Dalkir had invaded and transformed. And part of the issue is, but then we've also said there aren't other worlds in the there, you know, the system that Eberron is the center of things. And so the idea was then, okay, but what if it's not that it was another world? It was that it was another Eberron, that they changed it, and then uh we're existing in a different world than the uh, the gift came from. And so that sort of led to this idea of how to present a, a concept of reality can change without just saying everything is happening all at once and it doesn't matter. There's not that there's an infinite number of things. And this actually flipped to a little thing I like of, of course, being an old time D&D person. I always think of the term, the prime material plane, but why is it prime? Uh, and the point of that being here, what we're saying is, well, there is, there are other material planes, but only one of them is the prime plane that is tied to all the other planes that is the active rat in the maze, but that others are out there. This also then tied to that basic concept that we've always had with the draconic prophecy that in a way, the draconic prophecy isn't predicting what will happen. It's predicting what what will happen if these other events happen. And that to me, the draconic prophecy is very much like just knowing a path through a maze. If you take this left, this right, and this, you know, take a left at Borinel's assassinated and a right at Arala starts war, you'll reach this point. Wayne? I remember the discussion for <clears throat> for this and it started I, it started with me asking something about the progenitors and then making a joke that you know the Zoyat was whatever was left over once the progenitors were done with with the prime and I, I used I, you know I used the word prime material plane as well material plane and remember we kind of started went from that and Keith went hmm <laughs> right <laughs> and, always dangerous and, yeah always dangerous that's not a h&m is not allowed to to be combined uh with key um but that was a that was kind of, kind of fun thing where it's like oh maybe it's this maybe it's that and um just seeing that because I, I, obviously we're back on Zoyan again but keith was like Zoyan is not like originally was like this is not as interesting as other planes you said that about rizia and Fernie as well. I said that everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but for Zoya, you were like, I'm sure this is not going to be as interesting. But then we'd already start talking a little bit about this. And so as he started talking, as soon as he started going through this, and you know, obviously he he wrote a page and a half over what he thought he said he was going to write. Right. But <laughs> that's what <laughs> makes it interesting. <laughs> He's not going to live that one down. But it, it was interesting to see that that process. And it, it was almost Zoya was going to be unusable. 
um, just so everybody knows, <clears throat> it was like you go here and you can't breathe, you can't do this. It, it's like it, it's not it's it's not matter. It's like matters in the material plane. Everything else is in there in Zoyat. It was not going to be usable. So it was like, no, what are we write about? And watching that change and watching that get turned around and get turned into four and a half chapter, like four and a half pages, was a really big, uh, really big deal. I, I will say that the the final concept, just to, to flip on it, is less that it's what was left over, but I liked the idea of saying that it's as if they sculpted the material plane yeah, out yeah, of this right. this core block, and these are the things they threw away. Uh, but Laura, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, if I remember what I was going to say, um, that it it was it's really interesting. Like Wayne said, how every single section, even the ones that we thought might not be so interesting or might not be that much more new information, Zoriat's one of the ones that we kind of had a little bit more information on than we did in the for the others before EXP came out. Um, Dalcor being the one that basically everybody knows about Dalcor because there was an entire source book dedicated to Sarlona. Um, but it's been really fun seeing both how every single plane is now usable from low-level campaigns onward. But going back to my favorite topic, the Carlossa from Chapter 4, <laughs> there are even ways that you can adventure in the planes without the risk that you would have to, hire, to need a higher-level character. That even a DM starting at Level 1 or Level 2 could give their players a really epic encounter with the planes without the risk of bodily harm. Um, and that I really enjoyed that. Uh, it is interesting to me, just going back to, you know, as uh, as you said, Wayne, you know, that sort of point that with all of them, there were certainly a number, uh, I think both Fernia and Regia come out at the start. That's like, eh, this isn't going to be that interesting. Eh, fire, ice, you know. And by the end, I was always like, okay, I want to run stories here. You know, I want to explore this. Uh, certainly part of the point is you take planes like uh, Fernier and Regia in particular, where the core idea that was presented for them was this is the plane of fire. This is the plane of ice. And the point is that alone is both A, not very interesting, and B, has a little bit of, so where are earth and air? You know, like why, if if elemental concepts are what are driving this, why don't we see the others? And so with both of those, part of it to me was wanting to say, people may think of it as the plane of ice, but what is it actually? That the ice is just a manifestation of its actual core idea. Um, and that's where you get in this, you know, more of this take that Fernia is also about industry, uh, that Regia is in part about stagnation, that it is things being frozen, preserved, locked in place. Um, and that with both of those, that really sort of ended up with that point that is really all throughout Eberron of taking something that we know and are familiar with and saying, but how do we how do we look at this in a different way? And so even though Fernia is still the plane of fire, I'm very happy that basically it is not just the elemental plane of fire. It is quite different in the stories you would tell there than in previous fiery planes we've seen before. Anything else anyone wants to call out? Bob. <laughs> well, you know, hail Bob for sure. <laughs> Bob is the real MVP of this book. 
Well, and, and that was actually a- and his brother Borob or yes. sister or sibling or whatever they are. Borob makes an appearance a little later on, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know that was uh, another core example of Kithri is another plane that I have never been that excited about. You know, I've been like, yeah, it's, you know, it's plane of chaos. Uh, and what I really liked about this was having an opportunity to stop and say, but how is that different from Zoriad? You know, how is that, what, what does that mean uh, to be the plane of chaos? And it's ended up the, the slod uh, I've never really been that interested in. And actually now, you know, Kithri is one of my family. Like I, I again, can't wait to use it in a story because, you know, I'm a fan of Bob is all I can say. Uh, so to move on, um, chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight, all of these together are where we actually start getting into the sort of more core mechanical elements. Uh, chapter six being character options, chapter seven being treasures, chapter eight being a number of unique monsters for the setting. Um, Character options includes new backgrounds, a few new sub races. Uh, you know, one of the things that was a very big thing for me was Knowles of, uh, in previous editions, I've always done, you know, I've written things about how to play Knowles and about the near pact in, uh, Droyam. and fourth and fifth edition, not having a way to play Knowles, I really wanted us to be able to change that. And so I very much like what we've done with Knowles. Uh, anything anyone wants to particularly call out about chapter six? We, um, just for the class options, um, well, the Connie, uh, to have a different, uh, Dar races than, than what was presented in, in Bolos, uh, that was really important. Um, especially with 7,000 years of differentiation. That's probably something. Um, the class options were definitely interesting because we had to originally have these the artificial ones play-tested only by people with NDAs, um, which is not a large group. Um, it was like five of us, maybe. maybe yeah, and that, and that includes basically us, and I think it was like two other testers or three other testers that had NDAs. Yeah, because, because Will and I were contributing to design on that. So really we had... And thank you very much. Giving Shout out to Will Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, Will, yeah, we're, we're calling him out here. Um, but yeah, there was um, there's a couple things there that we just we couldn't talk to the playtesters about, especially especially in the races. Uh, uh, sorry, and especially in the classes, um, we couldn't talk to them about it because they're not under NDA. We we couldn't tell them. They they knew the book. They knew Rising from the Last War was coming out. We couldn't show them anything to do with that. So that was um, that really weighed on me uh, on my mind. It's like okay, we need to do something here about this. Um, so that kind of kept some of the stuff kind of hidden. Sorry, Imogen? Yeah, I, I was just going to remark, and I, I remember quite clearly that the playtest documents you sent us, um, those of us who weren't on the, the Rising from the Last War NDAs, um, with the, the big redacted signs over all the artificial <laughs> yeah. subclasses. I did do that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. So we had a good time trying to trying to puzzle out what might be in there, and then um, when they started previewing the, the final artificer, we... Uh, it was great fun to kind of unlock those last bits in there. Yeah. 
they made a lot of wild guesses as to what they thought might be in the redacted sections. Some <laughs> of them were more on topic than others. Uh, I will say one of the things I liked is going back to the Thunder Sea. A part of the the question is the Thunder Sea deals deeply with the Sawagan, uh, and that part of the question was, were we going to have a playable Sawagan race? And it was a tricky decision because part of it is, is uh, how do you balance that with the, the racial abilities that they have in fifth edition? How is it different from the Lakatha? Uh, and how do you deal with the sort of awkwardness of having a character who's partially amphibious? And the path I wanted to take ties to something that I've always used with the Swagam, which is the basic idea that Malenti, uh, in the original principle of things, Malenti are Swagam who look like sea elves, that they're just born looking like sea elves because they're too close to the sea elves. And it's always been one of these weird, there's no huge logic to this, but it's there. Uh, and what I said from the very beginning is they aren't born looking like sea elves. They basically eat a sea elf and become that sea elf. That the they are they are basically spies created to infiltrate other uh, cultures, and that it's very much this concept of you are what you eat. It's super uh, dark and it's awesome. Yeah. And so the point to me is, oh, we know that there are Malenti who look like sea elves, but there's Malenti who look like all sorts of things. Like just because you don't know you've meant a Malenti doesn't mean you haven't. And so rather than making it a race, it's a background because anybody could actually secretly be a Malenti, you know, a Suagan who ate your dwarf and came out a dwarf. And uh, so, as I said, I'm I'm just happy with that sort of twist on how we handle playable Sawagan. Um, anyhow, we're we're running close on on the end of time. Do we want to talk about anything in particular on uh, seven or eight? Sibris dragon marks. Um, yeah, I was just going to say Sibris dragon marks actually, because um, I think that's uh, quite a unique take on an option that's usually been you know, given, well, in third edition, it was a, a prestige class and fourth edition was it an, ep an epic destiny or a paragon path. Um, but it's, I can't remember anyway, but it's, it's been traditionally a, a sort of a late game class option. Um, and now we have in, in, in exploring Eberron, they, they make a return as sort of a pseudo magic item as a, as a, as a boon. Uh, <laughs> and, I think that's a really good way to do it in the sense of, well, as a, a player, um, it gives me access to that um, sort of reward mechanic without having to worry about, you know, uh, where is my build going? Am I taking the right feats and so on, um, which I think is very good. So <laughs> um, I what are you saying? Putting my DM hat on, I really love the Sybaris marks as supernatural boons because uh, you're not ever going to have a new level one player character that Sybaris marked just because the power levels are completely out of whack. That's just not going to happen. And so that's something that normally happens during gameplay. But as a result, that should be something that's a surprise to the character. 
And I really love that making it instead of a feat that the player chooses, it's something that the DM chooses to bestow. It really makes the experience more real as a player. Mm-hmm. Um, and more and more authentic, you know, oh my gosh, I just suddenly manifested this unexpected Sybaris mark. Um, and that, I mean, the capability could have been there before if you as a DM chose to give somebody a free feat, but it really puts the choice more in the DM's hands and we don't have players building for it or expecting this is how my story arc is going to go and I am going to become Sybaris marked at this level, which takes a little bit of the authenticity out of it for me. Um, right. So I really love putting that in the DM's hands. And yet we do have a sidebar. If DMs want to give that back to the players to let them choose, we have some tips on how they can grant that to the players at a time of the players choosing. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, <clears throat> Lauren will did um, a lot of the development on that. And uh, Keith sort of, this was one of those discussions that we all had was like, well, how do you present that and, and whatnot? And supernatural boons, obviously something, if you haven't really read, after the dm's guide uh after like the magic item section um these are supernatural boons are there um so it's really something that you can um you could have sorry supernatural gifts uh, actually i think boons is right sorry my bad i think and, they're a big um, deal in theros too yeah yeah exactly so those kind of things these kind of things was this is one of the things that um i really liked when i when i first saw um wayfinders was finding different ways to do things with the mechanics we have available. You know, you know, how do you, how do you create a, a dragon mark character? Well, that was a race, right? So you change the race, racial things. And it wasn't that anything that anybody had ever done before, before you put it out. It was just because everybody thought feats because that's what happened in third, third edition and fourth edition. It was all feats. Anyhow, uh, Sibiris marks are certainly the most dramatic piece of chapter seven, I think. But we do have a lot of interesting little things. Uh, We get a lot deeper into Dragon Mark focus items, which are a big thing for me, just because we've always said these are what actually really sort of grant the real power of the marks in the world. Uh, But we haven't gone much deep into what that means. And we also have a lot of symbionts, which ties specifically to having greater information about the Dalkir, both in cults and in the Mora section. You know, we sort of needed to get deeper. But part also of what I like about the approach we took here is with a number of things, Dakani artifacts, symbionts, dragon mark focus items, part of the point was saying you don't need an entirely, completely new set of items. Part of it is how do you describe the items we already have? That your cloak of the bat can just be a generic magic item, but if it's a symbiont, it is made out of, you know, living leather and bonds to your body and, you know, just describe it differently, but it can still be a cloak of the bat. And uh, so part of it was just describing what is a symbiont, what is a dragon mark focus item, what do those look like? Uh, Finally, of course, chapter eight is friends and foes. It is just... uh, you know, a number of monsters sort of came up throughout this thing because we talk about the planes a lot. We wanted to introduce a new Dalkir dealing with one of the ones that has been name dropped a bunch, but not actually uh, ever statted out. Uh, the Archfey was something I definitely wanted to, to tie into with the Lanus. Uh, we have a new Merfolk, a new Sawagan. Uh, we brought in the Dualora Cori, uh, 
because we're dealing with Dalcor and because it was one of the ones that didn't get mentioned in Rising from the Last War. And so it's just a number of, you know, we don't have a lot of monsters, but I like to think that the ones we have are interesting. Any, uh, I think any... just out of a quick thing, the Fae Rulers, mm-hmm. that was another hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Dora was, um, this is an ugly windsock. We want a diff- oh, different yeah. image. <laughs> I, I, like, there's a couple of them. Um, no offense to those those artists, not my favorite. I'm sure they were working with what they were given. Yeah, but um, but, yeah. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. The Dolora in particular, one of the drives for it is that uh, that was an idea I originally had when writing Secrets of Sarlona, and none of the pictures that have come out of it have ever really fit either the the vision I had of it or, to my mind, looked actually threatening. Uh, the the one in Secrets of Sarlona is just this weird blob with a couple of wings sticking out. And, and so I was happy. I really love that, that art, how that turned out. She did a a fantastic job on it. Laura? Just to call out my favorite creature of the creatures in chapter eight, um, the forgotten prince. I really feel like there's so many stories that can come from that. Um, But it was really interesting because we had, we had two primary beta readers that got the text before anyone else. Imogen was one of them. Um, but the other one actually ran an adventure. As soon as he got the text for, for Forgotten Prince, he was like, I have to run an adventure on this. And so he actually ran his party through. They had no idea that this was under NDA or had anything to do with EXE at all. But he actually ran his party through a story with the Forgotten Prince before any of this came out. And it was so much fun seeing how how that developed and he he shared you know stories of how how that all came out it was really fun actually seeing this book come to life before it's even been published and, i can uh, just oh sorry wayne go ahead oh just just to give you guys a little bit of background the forgotten prince uh when we first launched it this was not a fey ruler uh fey rulers had not been developed at that point there was not an idea this was something that keith and i talked about i said that sounds like a really cool idea let me put it to an artist and then we ended up not using it. So we're like, well, we have this piece of art. What do we do with it? And then the Fae rulers would come in. And and by that point, we could shift it. But um, yeah, waste not, want not for art. Um, yeah, that worked out well. Uh, Imogen? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, as, as, as one of the people who was running through that adventure with the, with the Forgotten Prince, um, watching as the other players have no idea what's unfolding was... Um, was very fun, you know. This is this is the prime moment for evil cackles behind the the, the screen, you know. Um, but I can attest the Forgotten Prince was my face. You job pretending you didn't know what was going on. You were you were very very convincing in your cluelessness. I was impressed. Great, great. I'm glad. I'm doing well on that NDA then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that that brings us through. So that's what we've got. And needless to say, it's a lot. It's taken us over a year, uh, but it's been fantastic working with everyone here. And I'm, I can't wait till people have it in their hands. Yeah. Well, we feel well, the we same were... about you. It's been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it feel to know now that, that, that it's done, that it's, well, when this goes out, that, it's, it, that the book is out there and people have it in their hands? Uh, I will say for me, it's that that sort of crazy frustration of of for you know very good reasons, uh, in part because virus, uh, but just that point of 
having worked on it for so long, now having been done for so long, and yet, oh, people still don't have it. Uh, so for me, you know, ask me again in two weeks because it will be so wonderful when people do actually get to see it and see if, you know, if people get enjoy it as much as I do. Laura? It's definitely a mix of both um, anticipation and anxiety. Um, I really enjoyed seeing Mike Shea, Sly Flourish, read through and skim through it because it gave me a little affirmation that, yes, people really actually do love this. It's as wonderful as I thought that it was. Um, but we finished the initial draft on layout and writing and editing, what, at the end of May? Just mm-hmm. before the world started burning down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and just the, the process since then of going through the print-on-demand approval and then having a few things that we wanted to change and then going through the print-on-demand approval process again um, has just been agonizing. And so I feel like we're really in the last couple of days. At any moment now, I'm going to get that message that says that my copy has been mailed and it's going to show up yeah. on my doorstep and then I'm going to have the final official version and we can hit sell and we can put it on the market. Uh, yes. Can't wait. I don't know whether I'm more excited or anxious at this point just to get it out there, but it's, it's, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. I mean, Keith and I, uh, you know, Laura, Laura and a couple of people were, were some of the first people we brought on to the project. Um, you know, Keith and I made a decision originally at uh, PAX East in 2019. God's yeah, above. You, yeah. you messaged me almost what a year and a half ago now. Yeah, you didn't yeah, even tell me who it was for, what it was for at that point. But I had a pretty good idea what it might be for. <laughs> I, I think the the thing to me that sort of boggles my mind is looking back over the posts on my website and realizing, oh, we shared the cover in November of last year. Yeah, it's been a long so, time, it's been a very long road. But I'm very glad where it's taken us. Yeah. And now you have planes of Eberron instead of us cutting it entirely out of the book. <laughs> that is a good thing. And yes, it took a little longer, but I'm very happy with it. Yeah, it's it's I remember I remember one point where I was, I was I was we were talking to Keith and I was I was saying you know, you put out obviously you put out a little bit more, but you put out like 5 pages every week onto your your site. This is 250 pages. Um how long would that take? You know, we're, we're talking about, you know, minimum a year just for you to put out just the content and whatever. Um, and we'd be getting it in chunks and we'd be getting here and we wouldn't, you know, maybe not a, a coherent book. Um, and I remember I was doing this calculation. I was like, it's going to take you five years to put out enough content to fill in all the gaps to put this book together. And that doesn't include art and everything like that. Um, it was... It was an interesting process, you know. Keith, obviously, you are a writer, and and he he's done this before. I've I've never done this before. I've never put together a project like this. Um, you know, I was a project manager in my previous life, but not in RPGs, not in not in anything that we've done here. Like, not as an art director. You know, I've I've never done any of those things, and it there's a burden on there that says, hey, we're not just trying to get this. We're not just trying to get this out the door. We're trying to get this right, and that's a really, really big thing. And I, 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 you know, Laura can speak to her, her side of this, but it was just like that's a really big responsibility because there's a huge audience out there. The, the people who are listening, uh, you know, the the couple thousand people who download the, the the podcast, the the few thousand people who are in Facebook and whatever, and, and other 
and other fans that we we may have never met you we, we we have never interacted with you you know it is our burden to make sure that you're getting this information and it's pretty spot on like <laughs> Wayne and I are both perfectionists and so that has made this journey very interesting but I think that it's been really good um, was there I I know that uh, Imogen there were maybe some questions we'll, we'll maybe field a couple questions I know we're going a little long uh, bear with us we'll try to be um We'll try to take a couple questions and then uh, maybe we'll just wrap up there. Right. Um, I I think there's there's probably one burning question that uh, I, I know a lot of people have been wondering um, as the the previews roll out, particularly in the last few months. But Wayne, what's with the bananas? <laughs> oh, okay. So um, how did that even get started? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember. So. Part of the joke is my wife. Um, my wife doesn't like bananas. Like she always complains when we buy bananas that she doesn't like them. But my kids love them. And what it was was someone was ask someone in the the community on Discord was asking me a question that I wasn't going to answer. So I basically I basically said, I my, my wife had just gone on a little rant about not wanting bananas, and um, <laughs> so I basically said, oh, it's this this, and I put in spoilers, so we kind of blacked it out. It said bananas. And, and that really annoyed them. And it about, went from there. Yeah. Basically, every time someone asks me a question, what is this thing? What what is this? Uh, what is this? And I'm not gonna say it, I would put start putting the word bananas. And then it got to the point where everybody else started answering bananas. And then we I thought it was hilarious, obviously. Some other people did not think it was hilarious. Um, but uh um it it went to it was our go go to, and then you know, there was a joke about the peeled banana, you know. You know, the Eberron is the banana and the peel is Dalcor. Like, we got into all these jokes about it. Um, it is in the book. Like we um, have three occurrences in the book, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, if you can find them without using your find and, you know, find function on your PDF reader, you know, all, all, all the more power to you. Yeah. But yes, that's where the bananas came from. Um, that's where the. And then you sent the preview copy to Sly Flourish for his preview, and you left all the bananas in there for the images you didn't want to spoil her. Yes. Now, speaking so of which, that, that is one thing I do want to to give a shout out to uh, before we wrap up, which is uh, the work that Marco Bernardini did, uh, which was, Marco again, one of our last minute, you know, as I was working on the planes and they got longer than we thought, uh, we were thinking about adding an image already and so uh, ended up commissioning Marco to draw a map of the planes. Because I and, had the privilege of working on him on a past supplement and he did an amazing map. Marco Bernardini is an amazing cartographer and you should all hire him. And he did not pay me to say this, but I had worked with him. And so when we were looking for some new art, um, we really wanted a new the the interior title page we we had this vision of what we wanted and we just knew that marco was a great fit and so we contacted him and it turns out that he adores eberron and fell over backwards scrambling trying to make it work in his schedule and it was an, it was great so the art that you see in the plains of eberron and that's not the name of the chapter whatever the plains chapter is called, called yeah. um the, the the plains chapter and then the art that nobody has seen yet beginning of the book is marco and it's fantastic but uh, yeah, all I mean, the work that he did for those, I love every single image. Uh, it's it's just really fantastic. Yeah, he 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 went out with, and and the artists really really went out of their way um, 
we had some pretty short timelines. We had some pretty absolutely. Hey, we need this like in a day or so. Like not not so bad, but like um, you know, the artists were really great to work with. They were um, a, a lot of them were not fans. They didn't know anything about it. Um, they took to it very very well. Um, it that was that was a pretty crazy thing. Being like, okay. You know, I thought originally, yeah, we were going to get like, you know, 10, 20 pieces of art. I think there's 49 individual ones. If you don't count, yeah. it, you know, it, if you don't count the breakdowns or whatever, like there, there's, a, there's a lot of art. There's, there's a lot of things that, that really went really, really well. You know, obviously we had a lot of challenges, um, but, you know, the, the two pieces of art that we have not shown everybody in, in their entirety, that will be shown on launch. And the reason, and Marco and, uh, uh, Katarina were really, really good about hiding the art. You're mm-hmm. like, sorry, we can't. Sh- we we want to keep this as a launch thing, and they were they're great with it. Uh, Katarina Marco- did just great work too. That the yep, chapter absolutely. of the opener is fantastic. Yes, yeah. So um, you guys will see it soon, or maybe by the time this is out, you'll have seen it. Um, time travel is difficult, <laughs> but not yeah. sure yet. Uh- <laughs> Okay, so I, I think maybe we should we should start to 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 finish up with a with a more lighthearted, I, I suppose, question. So, what was everyone's favorite part of the book, either as as part of the process or as part of the final result? Ooh, I'll go last. <laughs> Wayne, I already said mine. The Carlotta were pretty fantastic. Oh, this is hard. Like um, being the art director was one of the 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 most fun and one of the most difficult things. So um, kind of all of a sudden being like, well, I'm going to be the producer. And I'm like, oh, wait, I got to be the art director too. Hang on a sec. Um, I think the first image that kicked off the book, um, we was not sure we we're going to use it, but it was basically a gift uh, to Keith. And that's uh, his character, Rose. And that was yeah. sort of a- Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, that was the first, that was the first commission. Um, someone had, had directed me to Ollie. I remembered his name and sent it out. And so- um, sent a picture of Rose to Keith and being like, I don't know where we're going to use this. I don't know if we're going to, but here's our kickoff image for the thing, uh, for the book. Um, some people recognized it. Some people didn't, obviously. Um, but that was the first image that we show, uh, sh- showed on the, the um, uh, for the entire project, basically. For those that have seen it, that is the war-forged druid with a bunch of roses all around her. She's Correct. amazing. And and also, just for the note, that was the first use of the Circle of the Forged, the uh, archetype for druids that appears there. Uh, but yeah, that was fantastic. And for me, there's so many, you know, it's, it's just like it's hard for me to answer which was my favorite country in Corvair because I love them all. You know, I, why would I make a country I didn't like? And so it's the same here of, I like everything in this book. You know, I will say my immediate thought was, oh, the planes chapter or the planar map, but that is such a big thing. And my, my second thought was, well, Bob, obviously, because hail Bob. Uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll say just, if I have to pick one little thing, I really love the untold history table on page 13. <laughs> and part of the language that was saying that, well, there's all this Galifar has been around for a long time. And so part of the point was rather than writing 10 pages on just random events that have happened in the past that don't really matter, 
I made this little table that's that's just you can randomly say, oh, there was a religious heresy that involved the Orem and resulted in a annual holiday, you know, and basically it's just this little list of things where you just suddenly want to say, what's a piece of local history about this place? There's three columns and you can quickly come up with some random piece of untold history. And I'm very happy with how it turned out. It's not a particular um, piece of content that's my favorite, other than the Carlossa, which I've mentioned at least four times before this. But I really appreciate that, and I've heard a lot of fans ask, how much of this information is duplicated from Rising from the Last War, and how much of this is duplicated from previous editions? And really, what I love is the answer is very, very little of it. And the parts that are, quote, duplicated are really just to give context to the later discussion that comes out of it. You're not going to read this book and think, oh, really, I knew all of this before I read all of this. Some of it's going to be familiar if you follow Keith's blog, because some of it, the early development stages of it was on his blog. But really, especially if you ignore his blog, this is almost all entirely original material. It's not been in official hardcovers. It's not been in the Dragon Shards articles. It's not been anywhere. This is this is new lore that people can really take and love. And it's primarily story-focused, not mechanics-focused, which means it doesn't matter if you're playing with Savage Worlds or Pathfinder or whatever. You're going to find really just as much in this book no matter what setting you're doing because so little of it is focused on the mechanics of it. The, the last three chapters sounds like a lot, but that's what, like, a fifth of the book tops. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty much everything else's story. And I just, I really adore that, that this is not focused on, you have to be playing Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. This is, if you are playing a role-playing game that tells the story of Eberron, this is a book for you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's basically it. Keith, do you have any last thoughts on the book? No, I think Laura said it all. I have lots of opinions about this book and they are all good. (laughs) Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Everybody, thank you for listening. Um, Be sure to visit our website, manifest.zone, where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, or if you want to leave a review on a podcast service, uh, your favorite one, Apple Podcasts, um, that'd be great, really appreciated. And of course, you can find links to our social media. Please just let us know what you think. And, uh, you know, let us know what you think of the book. We'd appreciate that. You know, you can always talk to us on, on, uh, on social media about that as well. Now, join us next time. Honestly, this time, join us next time inside the demon race. We're trying to find a way out. Um, really, honestly, um, we will do the demon race. The Rakshasas. I don't believe you. I don't believe you at all. <laughs> <laughs> the Rakshasas insisted that we do it next time. So, until next time, keep exploring.